I'm so glad you've tuned in. Welcome to the Fox page where we dive deep into the very best books. We end up with a richer understanding of the title at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. I'm Kimberly Ford, best-selling author, one-time adjunct professor at Berkeley, editor, and PhD in literature. And for anyone out there who doesn't actually traffic in rare books, Foxed Page might be something of a mystery. But foxing are simply those little tiny sort of brownish dots that you sometimes see on the pages of very old, beloved books. Today's lecture will be slightly different because we're talking about a short story collection, but we'll, in the first one today, we're going to talk about why we would read this book. We're going to talk a little bit about Joyce's biography, and then a little bit about the structure uh, and some sort of overview of the short story collection. And then in the second uh, installment, of the lecture on Dubliners, we will actually be focusing on an encounter, which is just one of the of the stories from the collection. It's the second story from the childhood section. And then in the third section, we will be discussing the, the masterpiece, the uh, real sort of keystone to the collection, which is the last story called The Dead. As always, we're going to be doing quite a bit of close reading where we take a good look at um, you know the word choice and the syntax and the grammar, the cadence, all of that uh, good modernist stuff that we're about to dive into. If you don't have your book in front of you, that is not a problem. I will make sure that you're very well grounded even if you're out walking the dog or running errands or whatever you're up to. If you would like, you can hop on to the YouTube channel and you can see the Irish fisherman sweater that I just went ahead and just whipped up for this uh, installment of a James Joyce uh, exploration with you all. It's really, honestly, I'm just gonna say it. I think it is my masterpiece. It is my knitting masterpiece that you can check out if you go to the YouTube channel. And as always, I will have a whole series um, chunked together of images that are not, I mean, some of them are definitely just of Joyce and you know they're very germane and very pertinent to Dubliners, but some of them are a little bit far flung and readers and listeners tend to really enjoy checking out those images. So check that out in slideshow fashion with my commentary if you want uh, a little more. So we're gonna dive into this question of why read this book. So I am not, not a stranger to the idea of being intimidated by James Joyce. And I think that there, there's an unfortunate thing that happens with Joyce where people think of Ulysses and you know it's known to be or purported to be you know the most dense, most oblique, most difficult prose in all of English literature. And I think there is some truth to that. I have in fact tackled Ulysses. I read it once during a 10 day stay in Troy, Ohio, where I was with my daughter for an ice skating competition when she was 10 years old. And I really felt like I needed an antidote to the ice skating world. And as you might imagine, Ulysses was the perfect antidote. If you are going to dive into Ulysses, it's really important to have a lot of space around you because you'll need several different references. Of course, I was reading this in kind of a pre-internet moment, um, but I think that if you are going to tackle it, you want a nice annotated version. And then I think you do want some, some resources around you that are in pen and paper. And then of course, you know, the trusty computer nearby. But Ulysses, um, you know, if you have also read the Odyssey and if you have done, you know, enough sort of preparatory work, it's incredibly rewarding. But I um, and some of my very, very most esteemed teachers would argue, in fact, that Dubliners 
and portrait of an artist of, as a young man, that, that some of the earlier Joyce is in fact really his very best work. So that is why we are beginning with Dubliners. If we have lots of interest, maybe we'll dive into Ulysses as well. But I also love the idea of having a lecture on a short story collection. So not only is this Joyce, uh, but it's also a short story collection. And I think that those of you who are listening can count yourselves uh, in the bit of a, of a minority. I'm not sure that everybody out there really loves to just dive into short story collections. It's definitely the more literary folk who like to do that and certainly not James Joyce. So again, if you've read this and you're tuning in and you know you, you either made it through Dubliners or you even just picked up a copy or got it at the library, you should give yourselves a little um, pat on the back just for having gotten over all of the intimidation. I also like looking at short stories because of the fact that um, they tend to be stylistically more interesting in the sense that if we think of poetry as a mode where every single word is working incredibly hard and you cannot have a single syllable out of place, and you know you look at a novel, a very long one or even a medium-sized one, and, and they're, they're going to be different expectations on the part of the reader. The reader isn't expecting it to be perfectly worded at every single turn. I mean, maybe they should be, but, but there's just a little sense of, of slight, a slightly more relaxed expectation on the part of the reader. The short story collection is sort of somewhere in between. Of course, we also have the novella and we have essays and memoir and all sorts of different genres, but the short story fiction collection um, is a little between this idea of, of poetry where every single word is of the utmost importance and, and novels where you can kind of, you know, let your, let your guard down a little as a writer. Uh, I also like the structure of short stories and the evolution of them. So, um, you know, if you look at someone like O. Henry or Chekhov, um, you often would have uh, a short story that, that has kind of a twist or a short story that has a, a very important moral lesson or a short story that has kind of a, you know, a, a, like a little, a little shocking kind of thing at the end that, that makes you think about things in a different way. Not only am I interested in the idea of the short story collection and diving into some short stories, but also, um, as always, I am really interested in looking at just incredible prose. And James Joyce is, you know, not only this intimidating fellow, he was intimidating even in real life, even as a 22-year-old man, he really took the international literary world by storm. But I'm also um, interested in this very, very long shadow that he cast. So in terms of prose styling and in terms of sort of revolutionary prose, there really are very few people who can match Joyce. He was part of the modernist movement. So for anyone who's been following along and has um, you know, heard any of my conversations about realist uh, furniture, wow gosh, sorry, realist prose. This is a like a like a move away from that. Instead of trying to show some kind of world where an omniscient god, an omniscient narrator is telling you kind of factually and un, in an unbiased way about the world, in the modernist texts, uh, style becomes much more important. And instead of having sort of, um, you know, sort of quote unquote plain writing, which seeks to be invisible, you have an authorial voice that is much clearer. Uh, and, and in some ways, Dublin Dubliners is not quite as modernist, certainly, as Ulysses. And, and some people even clump it into the naturalist school, which is where you take that realist idea and then you kind of push it further into, you know, a more vulgar world. And there's, you know, more conversation about defecating and there's more conversation about death and illness. And it's like a grittier um, and, and oftentimes a morally corrective 
kind of version of realism. So um, the idea of looking at Joyce as, as a prose stylist is certainly another reason to read the book. I also want to point out that we are not, in fact, reading Finnegan's Wake or Ulysses. So it, it's kind of a, um, you know, it's the gateway. It's the gateway drug to the high modernism that is the later Joyce. I also, so Joyce himself conceived of this book as a portrait of Ireland. And as some of you know from, from the list of all of the things we've been uh, looking at recently, I'm in a real Ireland kick. We've been looking closely at how such a tiny island can produce such incredibly great literature. And in fact, um, I, I was very interested in this realist slash naturalist on the eve of modernist uh, depiction of Ireland, uh, specifically through the eyes of, of these Dubliners. So you have sort of this history and this geography. It was published in, in well, it was written in 1904, completed in 1904, and but was not published until 1914. So you have a turn of the century pre-World Wars vision of Ireland in very serious decline, but um, well before uh, independence, which I believe is 1912, and certainly well before the Troubles, which happened at the end of the 20th century. But it's also, I think, um, more universally a portrait of community. It's a portrait of a nation, certainly, but it's also sort of a portrait of all nations. It's definitely a portrait of colonialism, which is something that um, we will be discussing. Joyce thought of Ireland as semi-colonial, um, but honestly, with the, with the recent Irish, you know, immersion that I have been doing both in television and in film and in literature, I've really become much more aware of how um, how fraught the colonizing experience by the British was. And for anyone who has listened to uh, Irish recently being spoken, there's an excellent clip of Paul Mescal, um, who was just an after son and who was in Normal People. There's a there's a clip of him at some awards thing speaking Irish, and it gives you such a strong sense of of how different the Irish language was, how different the Irish, um, I, I mean everything about the language itself is so radically different from English, that that it was a very helpful reminder for me, sort of the, the English overlay, the way that that the you know England, that Great Britain really um, really made some very, very large changes. I like to look at colonialism through the um, through the, the, the lens of both the literature, but certainly of the language. And I just, in my mind, I always sort of thought that Irish was just like an accented, I mean, this is so naive, but that Irish was kind of this accented version of English, totally not the case. I mean, also you just look at the spelling, a word like Siobhan or any one of these names, Sirsha for example, um, it, Sersha, I guess it's it's pronounced. But you know, you look at those and you understand how different Irish was. So we also have Joyce contending with this idea of uh, of colonialism that was he was actually kind of aligned more with Europe um, and and not so much with the Irish uh, revival that was happening at the end of the nineteenth century. So late eighteen hundreds, um, there was a real resurgence and a real pride in Irish. The language and the and the culture and the history and um, Joyce, as we see very explicitly in *The Dead*, um, rejected that as his language. He saw himself more, um, you know, a, a bit aligned with England in some ways, but certainly aligned with with the European uh, intellectual set. Okay. So um, we're going to talk very briefly, that's a perfect segue, into a little biography of Joyce himself. So he was born in Dublin on February 2nd, 1882. He was the eldest of 10 children 
uh, and and the eldest son. Obviously, he had a brother he was very close to. But at one point, um, well, he when he's like 22 years old, he leaves Ireland and essentially leaves his family. He leaves the Catholic Church. He does not believe in in this sort of. He really rejects his country, his family. His father was this incredibly dynamic person and incredibly charming and very very bright but never was able to make any money. And they went from being sort of an upper middle class family. Joyce was at a very good high school, all of that kind of stuff. And they really, um, just as the country of Ireland did um, during the 19th century, they went from being, you know, very illustrious family or like a relatively illustrious family to really living in, in, in really dire straits. And again, this is, you know, at one point Dublin was considered the second city of the British Empire. I mean, it was really a very important Georgian capital. And, you know, you can see all of those beautiful homes on those huge big squares in Dublin. And, um, you know, so that was 19th century. And by the beginning of the 20th century, we see a lot of this in Dubliners. You know, all of those huge Georgian mansions had become uh, tenements. And it was just a, a time of incredible uh, difficulties with a lack of industry and um, with famine. We all have heard about the, the potato famine and all of the, the exodus that occurred at that time. So very much like the country of Ireland, Joyce's family, uh, you know, had some very serious struggles of their own, financial and otherwise. He, he was very, very bright from a young age. And as I said before, was known for being slightly arrogant. But, you know, you would have to be, I think, to produce this kind of literature. He was emphatic that the literature be published the way he wanted, which was why it took 10 years for Dubliners to come out, because he was so adamant that not a single word be changed. And, it, it, you know, I've been listening to lots of podcasts about this, and in one, an excellent one um, out of Princeton, actually, they, they were talking about how, you know, there are lots of people who hadn't even read the book, but they could pick out words that were offensive to them, and that was enough. And so they, they were prosecuting him for having, um, for trying to publish this book. And he was absolutely steadfast and adamant about not changing a single word. So he left the country in uh, 1903, and then for Paris was like, I'm, I'm out of here, I'm leaving my family, even my beloved brother, uh, I'm leaving Ireland, I'm leaving the Catholic Church. And then in 1904, he had to come back because he was, in fact, very close with his mother and his mother was dying. So he had to come back in 1904. And while he is there, um, you know, saying his goodbyes to his mother, he meets the woman who will become uh, the, the love of his life, the mother of his two children, Nora Barnacle. That is literally her name, which I just love. Um, it sounds very Dickensian, but it also sounds very much like Joyce. And there is um, a, a real Ulysses overtone to the last name uh, Barnacle. So Nora Barnacle is a very independent woman. Um, she was working in a hotel, but she's a woman who, um, by all accounts, was uh, financially independent. She was very, uh, she was not very well educated, but she was very curious, very bright, very sexually adventuresome and curious and, and very sort of empowered in lots of ways. And this was all very attractive to uh, Joyce, who talked her into moving back with him after his mother died of cancer um, back to the continent. And so the two of them eloped. They refused to get married and went to Europe and settled in um, Trieste in Italy, uh, had two children, Giorgio and Lucia. 
um, which I think is amazing. And it really shows you kind of their rejection of their uh, homeland in, in this way that they're, you know, they're naming their children Giorgio and, and Lucia or Lucia. Um, as it would be pronounced there. In 1904, that's the same time also that he was finishing up the writing of Dubliners and started work, um, well, not until a little later on Ulysses, but was writing portrait of the artist as a young man. It's important to note that all of the writing that, that Joyce does is set in Ireland, well, almost all of it. He also wrote poems and, and something called epiphanies, um, but he, he was almost always writing about Ireland from Europe. And this is a very... Um, I won't say very, but it's a typical pattern that you see, um, for example, with Mavis Gallant, who was a Canadian writer, but who lived in France for most of her adult life and wrote a lot about Canada. Or um, Nabokov is a very good example of someone, you know, he's Russian, but spent most of his, you know, he spent famously some time in the United States, but also in Paris and in Geneva. And he wrote, um, you know, a decent amount about Russia, but from the vantage of an exile. And... Uh, he died in 1941 in Zurich. Uh, yeah, that's that's all I have to say about that. Okay, so we're going to talk uh, briefly about the structure and some of the kind of overarching elements of Dubliners. So Joyce um, conceived of Dubliners and and was you know clear about the fact that it was chronological. So it starts in in um, you know evocations of childhood and moves toward. Uh, a story where everyone is an adult. Um, so we have this idea of childhood at the beginning, and Joyce himself said this, childhood, then adolescence, then maturity, and public life. So the public life thing always strikes me as funny. This is sort of, these are, you know, well-worn ideas about how Dubliners is is broken up or is kind of organized in Joyce's mind. Um, and, and public life, I think, it, you know, that's a category that would go, I think, together with maturity. But also, of course, you see these different people, even when they are children, in public life, which would, of course, be very much a part of this portrait of Dublin as a, as a community. So... You have this kind of nice chronological, very straightforward, as opposed to Ulysses, structure where we are seeing, um, you know, and it's fairly autobiographical and Joyce did not push against that too much. Um, so you have, you know, the recollections of boyhood all the way through uh, adulthood. Another thing that was truly revolutionary uh, about Dubliners, and it's something that we're going to look at in parts two and three of this lecture, and it's really pretty astounding, was Joyce's use of free indirect discourse. So we have seen this in other writers before then, but Joyce is doing this amazing thing. So free indirect discourse is simply the ability of a, of a narrator to enter into the consciousness of each one of the characters. So they'll, they'll, they'll move you know, from the consciousness of um, Gabriel Conroy in The Dead to the consciousness of Lizzie, who is the uh, maid in that story, and then into one of the aunts, and then into the Greta character. So you have this very deft and very kind of floaty and very kind of um, protean um, uh, narrative or, you know, narrative voice that, that's super revealing. So it's, it's uh, what I love about it is it's totally non-obtrusive. It's not confusing. You don't have a sense that some sort of gimmick is occurring or that like, you know, the, this writer's really like pulling a fast one on you. Um, in fact, it just feels very organic. And I'm not even sure that you would notice it, but it's very difficult to do. And it was revolutionary and really is a real, a real feat of literature. 
So, and again, in terms of realism and naturalism, one of the most um, sort of controversial things that came up during the trial for uh, Dubliners was this kind of realist element, um, which also became a big part of postmodernism uh, in the in the sort of 80s, is this idea of using real names and real people. You know, I think um, those of you who have read more like Victorian literature or even like Jane Austen, and they'll have the first name, the first letter of a of a town or something, and then they'll have the line. Um, as as if they can't, you know, they don't want to they don't want to give you the name of the real town where this is happening, even though it's in a novel. Or sometimes the last name of a person, you'll just have a single letter and then you know a blank space, um, like a little line. In in this case, um, Joyce was not shying away from talking about real people. He was talking about real places, very identifiable elements of um, of Dublin, and and lots of times in a very critical way, or at least in a way that reveals, you know, the real dire straits that this country has, um, you know, has fallen upon. So th that idea um, was very threatening to people, and so th those very kind of realist elements, not to say naturalist elements, um, really became uh, controversial. So I also found, so when we look at short story collections, I like them best when you do have a real sense of cohesion. Um, I like it when stories play off of one another as well, but not only do we have the cohesion of the chronology in Dubliners, um, sort of the, the, the evolution from boy to man, um, but we also have this repetition of characters that's really cool. So you'll be hearing about, you know, this kind of momager, this stage mom type person who's really pushy with her daughter and in fact, you know, ends her daughter's career. Well, that, I think it's Kathleen Kearney is the name of that young woman. She pops up in a different story. So you have lots of different characters popping up in different stories. And what's beautiful about that, of course, is that you have all of this background information. So when that character pops back up, you're like, oh, wait, right, I have... I have all of this empathy or sympathy for this person, or I, I hate this person, and can you know it's it's very ominous. So I think there's this it's it's very satisfying and feels kind of magical um, to be in a very different world with different people, and then have someone familiar arrive. Uh, in addition to the repeating characters and this chronology, we also have these kind of classical unities. So classical unities um, came from classic drama back in the day, like think, you know, the Greek chorus and, you know, something happened on the way to the forum. I mean, that's a modern version, but you know, the, like think of Antigone or any of those big, big plays, big dramas back in the day. So the, you, the unities then were that the action needed to happen in 24 hours. Um, and that that you had the same cast of characters and that happened in the same in the same place. Oftentimes it was that it needed to also happen in three acts. But in this case, um, we have all of the stories are taking place in 1904 and they're all taking place within Dublin. So you have that sense of of a, 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 of like a, a snapshot or a series of snapshots that are all on a photo album that, that do have the sense of cohesion that come from, you know, all being from roughly the same time frame and also roughly being, um, well, not roughly, of being in the same uh, city. And then, um, so one of the other things that I actually love about this collection is that it pushes a little bit against the kind of short stories I was mentioning earlier, where you have, uh, you know, a moral tale, or you have kind of a fable, or you have a, a, a twist at the end where you um, realize that, you know, like the whole thing is kind of coming together in a way. The stories in Dubliners 
to me feel oftentimes like sketches. Uh, James Joyce wrote something called Epiphanies, which he um, he was very interested in this idea of epiphany and this idea of moral kind of awakening, although he was not a moralist per se. Um, but but he would have this idea of, of of really sort of showing a mirror to the people of his community. Um, but in in the sense of showing the mirror, in the process of showing the mirror, there isn't a, a, a tidy ending. There isn't kind of a satisfying ending. I, in fact, think the endings of these stories, they're unusual, and I think they're one of the real strengths of the collection. I think they are so poignant, and, and oftentimes it's the fact that they feel sort of not complete that is one of the things that feels most poignant to me. So it, and in those unconventional endings, you also have, again, that sense of cohesion. It's almost like, um, it's not stream of consciousness, but you almost feel like you're, you can move from one thing to the next because there isn't you know, a very sort of finite um, finish to each story. Also, there's a lot of dialect in these stories, which I just love. I think Joyce, um, it's not heavy handed and it's not too conspicuous, but you have um, dialect that is spoken when people are speaking with each other, but you also have dialect that is woven into, uh, you know, the paragraphs of prose, which is part of that indirect, the free indirect style, where you have, um, you know, if if we're looking at the dead, you have Lizzie, the maid, at the beginning of that story. You have quite a bit of her vernacular woven into the narrator's prose because you are essentially inside her head. And it's this amazing way of allowing the reader to really understand these people and to get to know them because we are, in fact, we're speaking their language. We're hearing their language. So th there's a um, there's a very deft handling of dialect that is showing us everything about class and everything about education and everything about um, age and and um, you know personality. So th there's this very um, striking use, I think, of dialect not only in direct dialogue but also in the prose itself. I want to end with a um, an idea that I this is not my own, although it sort of um, it, it confirmed a lot of my own thoughts about the collection. This came from a um, a lecture online. It's a podcast um, with Uli Bear and uh, John Waters, not John Waters, like not the John Waters of Hairspray, that guy, but like a, a different. He's a John Waters. He's a professor um, at, at NYU. And um, it's, it's an amazing, nice, long, uh, kind of down and dirty discussion of Ulysses. And, and Dubliners comes into it as well. And um, John Waters, Professor Waters, has this really interesting take um, that isn't kind of, um, you know, it's not like earth shattering, but it was very clarifying for me, which is that throughout Dubliners, one of the things that we are seeing, um, in addition to the, the paralysis that right in the very beginning, um, there, there's a young boy who is is really um, cogitating. He's really um, sort of stuck on this word paralysis. And that idea of paralysis is something we see through the entire collection. Um, as far as Joyce was concerned, that kind of moral um, uh, paralysis was sort of at the heart of all of Ireland's problems. But then John Waters, Professor Waters uh, at NYU, takes a step further and talks about um, how for his money, the, um, it's the erosion of masculinity that is really remarkable in, in Dubliners. And he talks about this, this colonial uh, overlay. So, um, and Joyce, again, himself saw Ireland as being semi-colonial. But if you think of Ireland as a country that has been sort of, 
you know, like England has their, uh, you know, the boot on the neck of Ireland, um, you can understand how totally emasculating that would be for any Irishman, um, you know, to sort of feel like you were, uh, you know, a second class citizen or that you were um, being colonized or that you were kind of lesser than. Um, and certainly with the all of the uh, economic decline, all of the poverty, all of the violence, that, that Dublin um, was experiencing in 1904, you can understand where the colonial piece would be very serious in terms of making um, masculine, making men feel less um, less than. Also, um, you th this erosion of masculinity, according to the, uh, Professor Waters, also of course had to do with money because there was you know very high unemployment and it was very difficult to provide for your family. Uh, and also the waters, and, and this is very much the case, and it was really interesting to me to reflect upon again, um, Dubliners is filled with very, very strong women. And um, Waters' contention is that the women uh, really are very controlling and, and very strong presences and that they're very closely aligned to the church and that the, the church was sort of, it, it, the Catholic church was, was like, um, you know, it, it entered the family through the mothers uh, even though, of course, the, the priests were the, um, you know, the ones who supposedly had, you know, the power. Um, but but it was it was very much the church ladies. And we saw that in Milkman by Anna Burns. It's it's really women who are bringing the church. And, and, and so women, you know, have sort of the moral high ground. So you have this sense of women and the church both as also um, eroding masculinity. And then um, alcoholism as being sort of like the only coping mechanism left for a lot of these men and how totally dysfunctional um, the rampant uh, uh, levels of alcoholism in, in Ireland in general. That is a, a big part of Milkman for those of you who um, either read the book or listened to my lecture on it. Um, I loved that part. They live in a teeny, teeny part of town and they're like 17 bars in the teeny, teeny part of town. So, um, you know, alcoholism, I think everybody knows that stereotype. And in fact, we see it borne out in Dubliners. And as far as um, Professor Waters is concerned, that is, it's in part, a um, it's the result of this erosion of masculinity. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about the structure and some of the kind of overarching things that you might want to think about with Dubliners. And we've talked a little bit about Joyce. We've talked a little bit about why this book is so worthwhile. Uh, and in part two, we're going to take a, a much closer look at an encounter and then talk about a few prose elements. And then in the third part, we will look at, um, at the, the, sh the, the, the masterpiece of this work, The Dead. So please join me in the second round and the third and happy reading. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the second uh, portion of the lecture on James Joyce's Dubliners. So um, I'm going to say it again. I will say it over and over. If you are wanting to have a richer, more deep, um, quote unquote, better experience of reading, all you really need to do, well, you need to do a lot of things, frankly, but one of the main things and perhaps the easiest thing to do is simply pay attention. In reading Dubliners, I did the thing I always do, which is when a short story or a chapter has a title, for whatever reason, I just skip right over it. I skip right over it um, and then I'll have to go back and I'll be like, oh my God, that was the title? So don't do that. What you should do is pay good attention and not skip the titles. 
So the title of Dubliners, um, you know, obviously it has to do with the inhabitants of Dublin. I was so rewarded because I thought, well, I'm going to actually just look up what Dubliners means. And I assumed that it would be some kind of a place name, but I thought maybe, I don't know, it would be, you know, a person or something. And I was very satisfied and it felt very Joycean to realize that um, Dubliners, so the word Dublin comes from Dublin. <clears throat> wow, that's my Irish pronunciation. There's more to come buckle up, um, which simply means black pool. But it seemed very fitting to me that this, you know, once illustrious capital that has fallen on very hard times in Dubliners means in Irish black pool. But the official kind of name in Irish uh, for Dublin is Baila Atha, sorry, Boila Atha Clia. Wow, there is my Irish. Boila Atha Clia, which means town of the hurdled ford. So you have both of these things, a black pool, and then you have this town of the hurdled ford. So um, I like the, I like both of them. I liked listening to a little video about how to pronounce that Irish. But I love this idea of black pool as being um, what Dublin means. And, and it really, um, you know, could be like the theme of this book. So we have that as the, as the title. And I, I like the fact that um, it's not Dublin it's not um, Dubliner, it's Dubliners. Joyce is firmly pointing us in the direction of the inhabitants of this town. So it's, um, and it's very straightforward, it's very simple, uh, and it has to do with, of course, with Dublin um, as being, you know, in, in lots of ways, the capital, or at least um, you know, the capital of, of the island of Ireland in lots of ways. I mean, you have Belfast and you have other places, but there is a real sense of Dublin as having been that's probably very like um, demeaning to the people of the north in the Northern Ireland, but in in Northern Ireland. But there is a sense of um, of Dublin as being central in Ireland, which I think allows us to extrapolate from this this capital to the the country at large. But I do think it's very important this idea of Dubliners as a um, a community. That us at the end there has a real sense of the plurality. Um, which, of course, Joyce himself said, in fact, that it was meant to be a portrait of Ireland and um, certainly also of the capital. Okay, so when we dive in to our short fiction today, we're going to dive in on page 10 here to a story called An Encounter. I found this actually one of the, the most sort of disturbing stories, which is really why we're diving right in. Um, but it also, to me, um, it, it seemed like a sort of a paragon of a lot of the other stories, the way that it ends, the themes that it brings up, this this central uh, character, this young man, so boy, so um, and, and this sense of adventure and the sense of paralysis and the sense of, of, of sort of um, nothing having happened, but at the same time, a lot having happened. So we're going to dive in and take a close look at an encounter. Okay, on page 10. It was Joe Dillon who introduced the Wild West to us. He had a little library made up of old numbers of the Union Jack, Pluck, and the Halfpenny Marvel. Every evening after school, we met in his back garden and arranged Indian battles. Okay, so very briefly, this idea of um, this this one person is introducing something to us. So you have this sense right away of of the collective. So there's this this sense of us is is at the end of the very first sentence. 
the words that are at the end of a sentence carry special weight. So this idea of us as being prominent is very important here. And this idea of the Wild West, in lots of ways you can read the Wild West. I mean, I have real problems with like, you know, American manifest destiny and like this go West young man and westward ho and all of this sense of entitlement and this sense of, of you know, like expansion and like that we are the ones who are supposed to be doing this. But it's very important that the Wild West in this case stand in direct opposition with the paralysis of Dublin. So it's um, the basic, basic needs of these people are not being met. So also they're landlocked on a small island. So, so there's not a sense of, of expansion or a, of adventure or of growth. So it's very important um, that, that this paralysis that was introduced in the first story is bumping up right here um, with the Wild West. He and his fat young brother, Leo the Idler, had l held the loft of the stable while we tried to carry it by storm, or we fought a pitched battle in the grass. But however well we fought, we never won siege or battle, and all our bouts ended with Joe Dillon's war dance of victory. His parents, so again, this is this paralysis, this is this idea of bumping up against something that is just relentless and something that is kind of inexorable and, and it's just, you know, you, it's, it's, it's impossible to defeat this kind of overlay of, um, of authority. His parents went to eight o'clock mass every morning in Gardner Street and the peaceful odor of Mrs. Dillon was prevalent in the hall of the house. So that's very important too because you have the idea um, of his parents, but it's only Mrs. Dillon who is, is sort of singled out. So again, we have this idea of a strong woman. And again, Joyce was very close with his mother. He had many, many problems with his spendthrift father who um, in lots of ways, Joyce held his, his father responsible for his mother's death. I um, think also maybe it was like the 14 pregnancies that she had potentially. I mean, there are only 10 children, but there were many more pregnancies than, than children. But he played too fiercely for us who were younger and more timid. He looked like some kind of an Indian when he, when he capered around the garden, an old tea cozy on his head, beating a tin with his fist and yelling, ya, yaka, yaka, yaka. Sorry, I'm apologizing right now for that. That is so insensitive, but there it is in literature. So this idea of, of, um, of this protagonist as being younger and timid. So we're going to find through this story that this is largely a story of um, Joyce as a young intellectual. So you have this sense here of, of being kind of desirous of like this martial world, you know, the, the world of war and this world of, um, you know, cowboys and Indians and good and evil and battles and sieges and whatnot. But in fact, this, um, our protagonist, who we're going to follow throughout the collection, is in fact young and timid, and we're going to find out that he has real aspirations toward literature. But again, this idea of Mrs. Dillon as being, um, you know, she, she's, she is the adult who is, is sort of most present in, um, for these younger men. It's also so funny to me that, um, you know, he's really intimidated, this young man, by a, a boy who really looked like a fierce, you know, competitor with the tea cozy on his head. This is a very good example, in fact, of this free indirect discourse. This is the voice of the boy saying, um, you know, he capered around in the garden. He, he looked very scary to us. 
um, capering around the garden, an old tea cozy on his head, beating a tin with his fist. So you have this sense of the boy being afraid, but as an adult reading this, you understand that a boy running around in a tea cozy is not in fact intimidating. And of course, there's a larger message here, which is that a lot of the foes, and you have to think of England, and you have to think of you know, the Catholics versus the Protestants, although that is coming later after 1904 for the most part. I mean, it's already a real problem. Um, the English, of course, aligning with the Protestants and the Catholics, um, you know, um, well, then it switches. Let me tell you, the good news about Irish history, and you may see this in Dairy Girls, if you watch Dairy Girls, an excellent television show, it's so confusing that oftentimes the Irish also just have no idea what's going on. So I think it's um, it's actually really insidious. And the same thing happens in Milkman, the amazing novel by Anna Burns. This this The sense of this war that is being fought by neighbors and by brothers and by people you know who all look the same and people who all live in the same houses and live in the same neighborhoods, it's, it's this incredible confusion. And then, you know, do the, they're all Christian. You know, you've got the Catholics, the Protestants, then do the British. At one point they align, um, you know, more with the Protestants and then they are helping the, the Catholics in, in Northern Ireland because they want to still be part of Great Britain. So there, there's this real shiftiness in Irish history that I was so happy to learn that it wasn't just me, that in fact, everyone is confused by Irish history. I mean, not everyone, but a lot of people. So then we have we have this vision, this long paragraph of this of this Joe Dillon, who is you know this foe and this kind of formidable older character, uh, with this lovely smelling mom, and then everyone was incredulous when it was reported that he had a vocation for the priesthood. Nevertheless, it was true. So you have this idea of this kind of um, you know battle-drawn boy as then going into the priesthood. So you have this alignment with this Dillon family and this Dillon mother with the Catholic Church here. So, um, and then uh, we're going to go across the page over here to the bottom of page 11. But real adventures, I reflected, do not happen to people who remain at home. They must be sought abroad. So what happens in the story is right away, um, this younger narrator and a couple of her, his friends decide that they need to have a, an adventure, very much like the Wild West adventures that they had been having, but they needed to leave home. So of course, you can also read this, this sentence about needing to find adventure abroad as a much larger statement about Joyce, who leaves Ireland in 1904 and does not come back. Um, you know, he leaves, he's in many different European countries. He names his children Giorgio and Lucia. You know, it's just, she, he really is, is, has turned his back on his country. And, and, you know, he's writing about it incessantly. All of his stories are set in Ireland, most in Dublin. But there is this sense of adventure as something that cannot happen on the island of Ireland. Uh, okay, they must be sought abroad. Then we're going to move now to page 13, right, kind of down lower middle page. We pleased ourselves with the spectacle of Dublin's commerce, the barges signaled from far away by their curds of woolly smoke. Sorry, curls. I mean, I feel like a curd also kind of looks like that. Um, sorry. Uh, the barges signaled from far away by their curls of woolly smoke 
the brown fish fleet beyond Ringsend, the big white sailing vessel, which was being discharged on the opposite quay. So one of the things that's happening here is you're seeing kind of this vestige of the, of the commerce and of the prosperity of Ireland. So for these young boys, you have this sense of um, not only of um, the, the sort of the commerce and what's happening there and perhaps like a hearkening back to Ireland's um, you know, salad days and, and, and sort of better times, but it also is um, important that, that all of this is, it's ocean commerce, so you have this sense of all of it leaving. Um, and there's a lot of allure in this story um, about these sailors and these um, sailors that, who are leaving and, and, and this idea, again, of seeking adventure. Uh, but it is noteworthy, this kind of, um, the only way that, that Ireland in this collection seems, you know, prosperous is, is this idea of commerce. And if we are imagining that Gabriel Conroy at the end of this collection in The Dead, if we're imagining that he is, you know, the adult version of this guy in 1904, then you can also imagine that this is maybe 1880. Um, you could also argue that it's a little later, but but there is a sense of of, of this as being uh, it, during a, a, a slightly pros more prosperous, certainly more optimistic time. Okay, and then we're gonna move on to 14. I just got such a like kind of a shock at the idea of how apt an account an encounter is as a title because you have this kind of ominous sense looming over you that there's going to be an encounter. I mean. That is what the story is called. But you, it's, um, you know, as the story kind of moves along and as they have their adventure, at every turn you're like, oh God, what is the encounter? When is the encounter? What is gonna happen? It's a very efficient, so long as your reader actually reads the titles of chapters, it's a very efficient way of, of sort of adding tension here in the story. Okay, so um, on 14 down at the bottom here, he and his friend um, are in the field. There was nobody but ourselves in the field. When we had lain on the bank for some time without speaking, I saw a man approaching from the far end of the field. I watched him lazily as I chewed one of those green stems on which girls tell fortunes. So he's setting the scene, they're lazy, they're enjoying their adventure. Anytime something green comes up in this, uh, in this book, or in fact, anywhere in Joyce, you want to read it as, as Ireland. So green was the... I mean, all of you know that green is the color of Ireland. This coming Friday is St. Patrick's Day. So we all know green, but there is also, there's the orange part of Ireland that has, those are the Protestants. So you have the, the green um, part of, of uh, Ireland is aligned with the Catholics and this idea of uh, excess and this idea of, of all of the things that, that Joyce is going to turn his back on, you know, the, the church and the excesses of the church and, and um, a lot of the, the, the rhetoric that he can't sort of stand behind anymore. But the green also, um, you know, the, the, at one point they were talking about the green-eyed sailors and at the beginning of Ulysses, he refers to Dublin Bay as snot green which is that's that kind of vulgar language that you would have in naturalism. Um, but, but that idea of, of green should always alert you to this idea of Ireland. And in most cases, it's um, not flattering. I also love the idea um, right here, this idea of girls um, chewing on these to tell fortunes. So you have the idea of these boys as being fairly young. You know, they're all kind of running around together playing um, Wild West. And then we have this introduction of girls, the idea of girls, the idea of romance, you know, it sort of evokes the like, he loves me, he loves me not moment. 
in in this case, it's girls telling fortunes, but um, you know, presumably at least some of those fortunes would be about the boys they would be with. So you have this very, very subtle, very kind of preteen, prepubescent evocation of sex and of girls and of the fact that these boys are at some point, relatively soon, going to be interested in girls, which of course is very important given what happens next. Okay, then right across the page on page 15 here, and so now the gentleman has approached them. And uh, importantly, he, he's shabbily dressed, but he is wearing a suit. He is someone like Ireland, who at one point had some finery and had some distinction and is clearly very well educated um, and clearly very well read. And yet he has um, been in a real period of decline. We've got some real decadence happening here. He's now engaging with these young boys. That sounds so ominous and it should. He said that the happiest time of one's life was undoubtedly one's schoolboy days and that he would give anything to be young again. So again, this is this real hearkening, this real nostalgia, this real paralysis that we see throughout the story. And a lot of it is because, in fact, Dublin has you know, fallen upon hard times. While he expressed these sentiments, which bored us a little, we kept silent. Then he began to talk of school and of books. He asked us whether we had read poetry of Thomas More or the works of Sir Walter Scott, or Lord Lytton. I pretended that I read every book he mentioned, so that in the end he said, Ah, I can see you are a bookworm like myself. Now, he added, pointing to Mahoney, who was regarding us with open eyes, he is different. He goes in for games. So throughout the story, you have this tension, you have this push and pull, and this real division between our narrator and Mahoney. So Mahoney is going to get up and he's going to chase this, the, the cat and Mahoney, um, you know, wasn't that concerned about the other kid not showing up. So th th there, there are lots of distinctions between the two of them, but this, this is the greatest of them so far is this idea that, you know, this kid hasn't read any more than Mahoney. He hasn't read Lytton and he hasn't read Sir Walter Scott. Um, and yet he's claiming that he has, it's important to him um, not to necessarily align with this guy, although that is part of the temptation because this he's sort of this genteel, shabby genteel guy. But this idea of wanting to be intellectual is obviously, it's a priority for him. Uh, and then a little further down, I was afraid the man would think I was as stupid as Mahoney. So there is this, you have creeping in at this point now is a little, it's not even a little, I mean, he's saying as stupid as Mahoney, that you have this um, criticism and this, this sense of superiority that comes with being intellectual. We're going to see when, when Gabriel Conroy talks about Irish, in Irish as the language, in the dead, you also get that sense, um, you know, Miss Ivers is trying to get him to say that the Irish revival, which was happening at the end of the 19th century, you know, that that was worthwhile and that he should come up to Ireland for the summer and not go to France and do his bicycle riding and not go to the continent, but in fact stay in, you know, these sort of ultra Irish parts of Ireland and, and really sort of experience the country. And um, he's really rejecting of that. You know, he's really not interested. Joyce himself was not interested in the Irish revival. He did not see Irish as a language, as a way to move forward. He was really interested in all of the modern languages. So, you know, French and German and Italian and really rejected this idea of kind of moving backwards, quote unquote, backwards and championing this revival of Irish. Instead, he was sort of turning his back on all of that um, and, and wanting to push forward into modernity. Okay, so then on page 16, the gentleman continues, 
There was nothing he liked, he said, so much as looking at a nice young girl, at her nice white hands and her beautiful soft hair. So that's an interesting and super creepy thing that's happening now is he's, it's, it's clearly kind of a bait and switch thing. Um, when he's talking about these girls too, he's talking about their hands and their soft hair, which are, is not, there is nothing uh, innately feminine about that. I mean, there's nothing about, I mean, boys have soft hair and hands too. So you have this sense of, um, you know, the, the, the real creepiness of what is happening here. He's talking about girls, in, in which case he's sort of aligning us and, and himself supposedly with um you know the narrator who is chewing on the green stem and yet we we have the the horrible dread the terrible sense that he is in fact um you know going to be inappropriate with these boys he gave me the impression that he was repeating something which he had learned by heart or that magnetized by some words of his own speech his mind was slowly circling round and round in the same orbit at times he spoke as if he were simply alluding to some fact that everybody knew. And at times he lowered his voice and spoke mysteriously as if he were telling us something secret which he did not wish others to overhear. He repeated his phrases over and over again, varying them and surrounding them with his monotonous voice. This is so interesting because one of the things, I mean, even this passage, it's a very long passage describing how this guy is kind of intoning this, this um, you know, this kind of like mantra. And part of it is, um, you know, I think we're meant to read it as, as like religious doctrine, you know, that instead of religious doctrine, this gentleman is kind of intoning these, these kind of quote unquote facts uh, that everybody else knew or something that he was trying to believe in. This is an, an allusion, I think, to the Catholic Church and to this idea of kind of rote faith and this idea of um, absolving your sins with, um, you know, Hail Marys, that sort of thing. So you have this idea of, of a certain kind of uh, faith here that is not functioning the way that the Catholic Church would like. But you also have this incredible sort of meditation on the power of voice and the power of language. So he has the words that he is saying, which is the language, and then he is surrounding them with his monotonous voice. So you have both the idea of, um, of, of language itself, of the words and their meaning, and then you also have the sense of, of who is saying them and how are they being said. So Joyce is doing this very cool thing where he's helping us really pay attention to the language here and, and also to who is speaking. Here, of course, it's like this old gross pedophile guy who is speaking these words, but there is this sense of, of, of the power of language. I mean, he's sort of, he's kind of hypnotized himself and you get the sense that the boys are a little bit hypnotized by the whole thing. And then just one paragraph down, we have the dialogue here. Um, very brief interlude about dialogue. So um, Joyce uses an M dash at the beginning of dialogue. So it's very easy to follow along. There's a concept called scare quotes. And it's funny, I don't, I don't have a big thing about this. I, I don't mind this kind of um, punctuation instead of quotation marks. Sometimes it can be confusing. It's in Europe, in Spain, for example, um, they, they do that. So instead of quotation marks, often you will have that M dash, that dash, and then the line of dialogue. And there are times when it gets confusing because the end of the speech and the beginning of the gloss, the part that's talking about the speech, sometimes it's not totally clear. And, and Joyce, um, again, was, was pushing back against some of these conventions of literature, was pushing back against pretty much everything. But this idea of, of not having things be in quotation marks and sort of not, not using this kind of artificial 
separation is very kind of Joycean and it, it's very much of a part of the kind of free and direct style, you know, that all of the, the dialect and, and, and the sort of language of these people should not be contained only by the quotation marks. They should, in fact, um, it, you know, if we are in the mind of this young boy, we should have his language also being part of the general prose. Okay, and then we're down here to this part, and this is Mahoney talking. I say, look what he's doing. As I neither answered nor raised my eyes, Mahoney exclaimed again, I say, he's a queer old josser. In case he asks us our names, I said, let you be Murphy and I'll be Smith. We said nothing further to each other. I was still considering whether I would go away or not when the man came back and sat down beside us. Hardly had he sat down when Mahoney, catching sight of the cat, which had escaped him, sprang up and pursued across the field, pursued her across the field. So this is so, this, there's so much work going on here. Those of you who listened to um, the lecture on Anna Burns's amazing milkman know that the, that the cat in that book, and I'm imagining maybe in Irish language and literature, and maybe, maybe this is like a whole thing that I don't have a really good grip on, but certainly cats, if you're not talking about tomcatting and you're not talking about a tomcat, a male cat, cats are, are seen as kind of feline and seen um, to have a lot of these like sort of negative qualities of women being standoffish, being aloof, um, being vain, you know, all of those kinds of cat tropes. Um, but in this case, it is a female cat and Mahoney, um, it's, it's this idea, and of course, cat and pussy, you know, you have this very like English slang way of, um, of denoting the vagina. But so here we have this idea of him um, going off to chase this, this feline who is, you know, very much a stand-in for, for women and leaving behind his friend with this predator. So, and, and this is very much um, when, the, when the older man earlier said that, you know, that this, our narrator is like a bookworm and Mahoney is one for games, he is in fact being proven right here because Mahoney is dashing off to catch the cat, which looks very much like a game. It also looks like, um, you know, a foreshadowing of Mahoney's burgeoning heterosexuality. So um, you have um, the, when Mahoney goes off and leaves behind our narrator, our narrator is seen as aligning with this man who is, you know, he's a sexual deviant, but he, he also is an intellect. So then down a little further um, on page 17, I was going to reply indignantly. Oh, so this is um, when he says something about boys enjoy whipping. I was going, the old man says that. I was going to reply indignantly that we were not national schoolboys to be whipped, as he called it, but I remained silent. So again, there's lots of silence. The boys don't say anything to each other. Um, the man with that weird droning voice had his say, um, and, and lots, he said a lot of different things. And then the boys are, are, are silenced by the difficulty here. Again, this is that paralysis. You have the moral paralysis of, of the people of Ireland in general, but you have like this vocal paralysis here for this poor boy. He began to speak on the subject of chastising boys. His mind, as if magnetized again by his speech, seemed to circle slowly round and round its new center. He said that when boys were the kind, they ought to be whipped and well whipped. And then down a little bit, it's getting more and more insidious, more and more threatening. And then we go down to the bottom part here. I waited till his monologue paused again. So again, this boy is having a very hard time asserting his voice, as he would. I mean, this is just really, um, you know, very scary situation for him. Then I stood up abruptly. 
Lest I should betray my agitation, I delayed a few moments pretending to fix my shoe properly, and then, saying that I was obliged to go, I bade him good day. I went up the slope calmly, but my heart was beating quickly with fear that he would seize me by the ankles. So we have, there is a lot going on here, but one of the things that going, is going on is we know in fact that he is he's afraid and he's afraid he's going to be physically accosted. And yet there is this real sense of needing to kind of maintain decorum and maintain, um, you know, his, his quiet and maintain this, this sense of being civilized and not being appalled um, by this man having just masturbated in front of them. So that's, again, this kind of paralysis. He can't speak out. He can't do anything other than kind of act within the bounds of what society thinks he should do. And then the ending of this is so fascinating. It's really, it's really something. So down at the bottom here, and this is actually, I mean, it ends a typical of Joyce on kind of a, um, you know, kind of a non note, like it ends on just kind of this, uh, like a, you know, it, it sort of trails off in some ways. We don't have like any big conclusion, but we have a very important twist that I think says very, very much about our narrator. And it's one of the things that will be developed throughout the collection. Okay, in the final paragraph here. So this is, he calls out to his friend Mahoney. I mean, well, but he calls, he says Murphy because they've changed names now. My voice had an accent of forced bravery in it and I was ashamed of my paltry stratagem. I had to call the name again before Mahoney saw me and hallowed an answer. How my heart beat as he came running across the field to me. He ran as if to bring me aid and I was penitent for in my heart, I had always despised him a little. So you have this, you have this idea here of this boy who is really transformed by this. And he has the friend who's coming to his aid and he's penitent, he's, he feels badly about it, but he also, we are ending on this note. Um, you know, earlier he said he didn't want the older man to think that he was stupid like Mahoney. And here we have this idea of despising him, which is a very strong term. So we have this real sense at the end of, of, of this having been, you know, this encounter, which is, you know, a significant encounter. And in some ways they have had more of an adventure than they bargained for. Um, and in some ways they haven't had their adventure at all. It was cut short by this droning, masturbating, terrible old man. Um, but, but there is this sense too of even when the boys, you know, should potentially be united and when the young boy is being helpful of a division. So you have this sense, um, you know, obviously uh, Ireland with its Catholics and Protestants and its Irish and British, it's, it's full of schisms. It's full of, of this kind of separation and contrast and conflict. So even with these young boys who are very, very close, you have this, this idea of separation between the two of them and conflict and kind of nascent, um, you know, despising, which is really, really a bummer. Um, okay, so that is the end of our discussion of an encounter. I hope that that was helpful. And I hope that if you keep those themes in mind as you're reading the rest of the collection, hopefully um, you'll have a, a better experience of the collection. And please join us for the third section when we talk about uh, the dead. Welcome back, everybody, to part three of our discussion of James Joyce's Dubliners. 
Uh, okay, we're gonna take a look in this last section at the dead, which is kind of the, the heavyweight in this collection. And then we're gonna talk very briefly about all the things that I will not have time to talk about. I'm gonna just name them for you at the very end. Okay, so as always, the first thing we need to do is pay close attention. So we're gonna take a look at the title. So I love the title. I mean, do I love it? I do, but it's, it's dark, which I love. Um, the title is The Dead. So I really enjoy the, the, the resonance of Dubliners and the dead. So there's this idea of, of that D sound um, and Dubliners is kind of, it's, it's got a lot happening. It has a nasal at the end, it's plural. It has a couple of different vowel tones. The dead is very, um, it's very definitive. It's very monosyllabic. You have this idea of, of finality, not only because of what the word means, but because of the word itself. But um, if you had the word, if you imagine dead, as opposed to the dead, it's a very, very different concept. So this idea of the dead, um, we're, if we're talking about the dead, it's like night of the living dead, or um, I don't know what else, um, dawn of the living dead. Um, anyway, so this idea of the dead is, we're, we're talking about specific people who are dead, or not specific, but we're talking about people who are dead, not just anything that is dead. Um, so it's, and, and there is a certain kind of reverence and a certain kind of, of uh, distance that we have between the dead and much of the story. So it's not until the very end. So a little bit like with an encounter, it, it, it really inflects the entire thing from the start. It is the first words that you're reading. So you have this sense of the dead um, as being the first line of the story. That's how you should often look at the title of a short story. And, and so it's, it's literally casting a pall um, over, over the entire story until the end. So we're gonna take a look at this very first section here, just the top of the first uh, paragraph, because I want to look at this as um, an example of free indirect uh, style, the the free and direct discourse. It's also called. It's this narrative stance where, even when a character is not quoted uh, specifically, you still have a sense of that character's language, because their language is kind of adopted by the narrator. Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. Hardly had she brought one gentleman into the little pantry behind the office on the ground floor and helped him off with his overcoat. Then the wheezy hall doorbell clanged again, and she had to scamper along the bare hallway to let in another guest. It was well for her she had not to attend to the ladies also, but Miss Kate and Miss Julia had thought of that and had converted the bathroom upstairs into a ladies' dressing room. So right away we have this division between men and women, we have division in classes, we have Lily who is the caretaker's daughter, we have these spinster aunts who are, um, you know, her, her employers. So we have all of these divisions that are set up right from the beginning. Also Lily as a name is significant. Um, so the, uh, Lily the flower is associated with the angel Gabriel. So there is this sense of Gabriel Conroy, um, you know, Archangel Gabriel, um, as, as being kind of having his counterpoint at the very beginning with this flower, this sort of feminine version of himself, but who is in fact in opposition to um, almost everything he stands for. So how do we, how are we understanding this as indirect discourse? So if we look at this here, she was literally run off her feet. It's funny to me that that is a phrase now that people use all the time, and obviously people are using it incorrectly. But if you're James Joyce and you're using it incorrectly, it's not like an affectation of a teenage girl. I mean, 
In fact, it actually is exactly that. But it's funny to me that that affectation or that tick or that verbal, um, you know, trope has become something that that girls, well, everybody says um, quite a bit these days. I think it's on its way out. Um, but this idea of how she was literally run off her feet, in fact, she was not literally run off her feet. So that's very much a word that, that Lily herself would have used. And then when she talks about one gentleman into the office on the ground floor, and then the um, wheezy hall doorbell clanged. So wheezy is a word um, that, that would signal something that she would say. It's kind of, you know, it's a little slangier than, than what our narrator has used. And also this idea of a gentleman and of Miss Kate and Miss Julia, those are terms, those are titles and terms that, 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 a, that a servant girl would use, not, for example, Gabriel Conroy. He would have thought of them as Kate and Julia, and he would have known the gentleman by name. So we have this, this is a good example, um, you know, and she had to scamper along the bare hallway, um, this idea of scampering, all of these are sort of words that would have been in her parlance. So it helps us understand that we are with Lily in her perspective right now. So who should enter but Gabriel Conroy? He is named in this short story. And you have this sense of him as um, in lots of ways, because this, this piece is longer and because he is very much at the focal point of it. Um, and because it's the third person. So we're getting this sense of like who he is from the outside. It's not, a, I did this and I did that. You really do have a sense of him having matured and having um, come into this public life. It's interesting that this, this is a, it's a public thing that is happening, but it's happening in a private space. So it's, you know, people all coming together. It's not, totally public it's not like you know open to the public but there is this sense of, of of a very intimate space someone's home being used for a gathering of people who are not you know the residents or the family uh so there, there's this idea of of public and private which are very important throughout this collection as as kind of colliding here and then let's see if we're going to look on the next page on 152 of course they had good reason to be fussy on such a night and then it was long after 10 o'clock and yet there was no sign of Gabriel and his wife. Besides, they were dreadfully afraid that Freddie Malins might turn up screwed. They would not wish for worlds that any of Mary Jane's pupils would see him under the influence. And when he was like that, it was sometimes very hard to manage him. Freddie Malins always came late, but they wondered what could be keeping Gabriel. And that was what brought them every two minutes to the banisters to ask Lily, had Gabriel or Freddie come? So here we have kind of, we have it flipped. So now we have entered into the communal minds of the spinster ants who are throwing the party. And we know that, you know, Lily is like, oh gosh, they're just freaking out and they're being so demanding. And then um, this idea of, of course they had good reason to be fussy on such a night. We're, we're moving into the consciousness of these women. And we know that because there was no sign of Gabriel and his wife. So it's not Gabriel Conroy, it's not Mr. Conroy, it's not a gentleman. And then this idea, besides, they were dreadfully afraid. You can imagine dreadfully afraid as being a word that they, a phrase that they might use. And then when they say that any of Mary Jane's pupils would see him under the influence, again, we have this idea of the concerns of these women. So we're shifting very organically and very sort of seamlessly from this younger woman, the servant girl, that is not a great name, but I don't know what else to say, their employee. Um, and we're shifting to the point of view and the language and the perspective of um, the communal perspective, which is important because the sister ants are all kind of seen as, as a block 
of, of humanity, of women. And Mary Jane, of course, is one of them. Kate, Julia, Mary, or Mary Jane, I think, is younger. Doesn't really matter because they're all kind of interchangeable for most, um, you know, for all intents and purposes. But in this case, Mary Jane's pupils, we know that Mary Jane um, is, uh, you know, she's teaching them. In fact, she's teaching them music. But the fact that they know her as Mary Jane says that there's this real familiarity between them. So what's their main concern here? Their main concern is that these men are not going to show up. So these men are very important. They're also unreliable. They're late. They're worrisome. And one of the biggest um, concerns, of course, is that one of them is going to be seen to be drunk. So again, we have um, you know our trusty uh, Professor Waters from NYU who had that, that um, nice uh, lecture about how th there's a real um, threat to masculinity, a real erosion of um, sort of masculine uh, you know, pride and cohesion and self-actualization because these men um, really have not very many ways of dealing with their issues except for alcoholism. So we're going to move on to page 154. So, 154, we have this very kind of unfortunate thing that sets off this series of events where Gabriel Conroy, who, um, you know, arrives at this party, has these kind of missteps with these women. So you have Gabriel Conroy, and of course, Freddie is a somewhat important character, and there are a couple of other male characters, but, but, but Gabriel Conroy is certainly our focus. And he, he has this series of situations with women where he just doesn't get it. He doesn't, um, he doesn't understand them. They fail to kind of communicate. And the first one is when he doesn't remember how old Lizzie is. He thinks she's still in school and she's like, I've been out of school for years. Um, and he says something else that's like just clearly missing the mark. And then he offers her money which is very awkward for both of them. So this very first interaction with this kind of Oh, I want to say low stakes, and it kind of is. I don't mean that in terms of her like social station. I just mean that he's having this brief interaction with someone who's not like, you know, his wife or one of his aunts or a very close friend like Ms. Ivers. So he has this kind of low stakes interaction and he just really does not handle it well. So um, you have him misreading women in the very beginning, and then he engages um, with Ms. Ivers. So if we go to page 162, we have this idea um, of, of Miss Ivers. It's, she's a very interesting character because she's a very independent woman. She's a teacher. They studied literature together. Um, she's an example of, of everything that he holds um, in esteem, our narrator, who back in an encounter, um, you know, had, had this real sort of desire to be worldly um, and to be, uh, you know, well-read. And, and, and of course, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult situation because the paragon of literature in that story is a, is a terrible character who is, you know, sexually inappropriate with young boys. But then later we have this Miss Ivers character who not only is very strong and accomplished of her own right, but she's taking him to task because she um, kind of busts him for having written in a um, in a paper that has British sympathies. So and it's interesting. There's this little phrase down at the bottom of 162 where it says literature was above politics. So, I mean, I think anyone in this day and age would understand that literature cannot be above politics. Um, in fact, politics, you know, for worse or for worse, infuse everything that we do. And, and um, Joyce is turning away from the Irish revival and, um, you know, moving to the continent and sort of forsaking his homeland. Wow, I'm really coming down hard 
on poor James today. But this idea of, um, of, of him as really aligning with the continent and, and in some ways, you know, with the colonizers in order to sort of raise himself uh, in terms of his uh, reception in the world and his ability to have intercourse with all these intellectuals. And by intercourse, in that case, I mean, um, you know, conversation. Um, so he's so you know you have this sense of him as yes in fact aligning with the British people as a writer, and here we are in 1904, which is the year that he leaves Ireland forever. And one of his very good friends is sort of accusing him of not um, being faithful. In fact, um, things get very specific on page 163. Uh, Miss Ivers, his good friend from school days, is saying that they should come up to Connaught with um, with her that summer. And she says, it would be splendid for Greta too if she'd come. She's from Connaught, isn't she? Her people are, said Gabriel shortly. But it's that's not true because we know that she grew up in Galway and Galway is in Connaught. So she, he's, he's like embarrassed of the fact that she's from this part of Ireland that's like much more kind of Irish and less sophisticated than, than Dublin. It's much less a European capital and more kind of a provincial place. And, and Miss Ivers, who, you know, at one point they, and even today maybe, you know, they're, they're equals. They went to the same school. They do the same thing. They're both teachers. They're both writers. She, in fact, is very comfortably aligning with Ireland, and he's not doing that. He's turning his back on it. And then if we go down a little bit further, he gets even more outspoken about this. So she's, she's pushing. She's like, wait, where are you going this summer? Like, why can't you come with us? And he says, well... We usually go to France or Belgium or perhaps Germany, said Gabriel awkwardly. And why do you go to France and Belgium, said Miss Ivers, instead of visiting your own land? Well, said Gabriel, it's partly to keep in touch with the languages and partly for a change. And haven't you your own language to keep in touch with? Irish, asked Miss Ivers. Well, said Gabriel, if it comes to that, you know, Irish is not my language. So it's interesting and I, who I'm just like so smitten right now by everything Irish and I'm so fascinated by this incredible language with all these crazy accents and crazy consonant combinations and crazy sibilant pronunciations. Like it is really just a really, really crazy language. Um, I'll, you know, in the, in the slides, I'll have some written uh, Irish and then I'll try to pronounce it for you uh, at the end of the YouTube version of this so that you can see what a cuckoo, cuckoo language it is and, and very, very different from English. So you have this sense of Joyce as being like, no, no, in order to progress, we need to sort of move back together with the prosperous countries and the countries who are moving ahead and not this country that is absolutely gripped by paralysis. Okay, so he has this, this interaction um, with Lily, then he has the interaction with Miss Ivers, and it's significant enough that he decides he's gonna make a little jab at her when he's making his toast. So it's interesting that his toast is um, very much the center point, it's the center piece of, of the party for him and for other people too. He's, he seems like very much the golden boy. His aunts were really, um, really wanting him here. They were concerned about Freddie, but they really just wanted Gabriel's presence. He seems very important for the party. And in fact, he's the one who's going to stand up and he's going to talk about the past generation. And he was going to do a little dig at Miss Ivers, which in fact is not important when he gets up to make the speech. But one thing that I think is so interesting is that 
in much the same way that we saw the the sexual deviant guy and his voice droning on and the power of language then that sort of hypnotic like almost religious kind of incantation convincing kind of thing um, then here we also have the power of language so um, Gabriel feels acutely that he is going to be able to sort of you know, he's going to be able to, to, to really bring everyone together with his language. So he has that moment and it's his speech actually goes off fairly well. They so and music is a very large thing all throughout this whole story. And it is in this uh, in this book as well. I mean, in this story as well, but we're not going to dig too much into that because we have other things to dig into. So he has the, um, you know, the, this moment of finding his voice and, and he's, you know, things are kind of on the upswing after his first two social gaffes. And he, he is sort of filled with this idea that he wants to join with his wife. So it's this very kind of sweet moment where you're like, oh, maybe, you, maybe this story is gonna end on a happy note. And if we go to page 190 and 191, we come across what is in fact the the kind of most crucial um, like inability to communicate in this story. So if we look on 190, we're at the top here. So a song is overheard by Mr. and Mrs. Conroy by Gabriel and Greta, and it, it reminds her of someone and she gets very wistful. And so instead of, you know, um, he feels very gallant and he feels very amorous and he feels like tonight's going to be the night, you know, their children are off at home, they're in a hotel, like, he, you know, he's going to really um, connect with his wife, both physically and uh, emotionally. And so he's really excited about it and he's really feeling very optimistic. And then she um, is obviously nostalgic and sort of not, she's not in the mood. Okay, and then here on 190, at kind of the middle top of the page here. It was a young boy I used to know, she answered, named Michael Fury. He used to sing that song, The Lass of Orem. I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, he was very delicate. So you have Michael and you have um, Gabriel. And I'm going to have to, at the end, I'm going to have to do uh, a quick little discussion about those angels because I think they're both archangels. And one of them, maybe Gabriel, anyway, I'm not going to make conjecture because I do not know my angels, but I will come back with that information. Guys, it's me. I'm back. Um, oh, my research on the archangels produced the following. Michael, in fact, and significantly, is um, like a like a more, he was like chief of the four archangels. So poor Michael Fury is actually like the, the more kind of prominent and the more commanding and more important archangel. And poor um, Gabriel uh, was only like the prophet of God. Like he would speak, Gabriel would speak God's will, but Michael was like in charge. He was the chief of all of them. And he also did battle with Satan. So um, I think, well, I don't think, James Joyce here is clearly trying to uh, remind us that uh, Gabriel is kind of the lesser, still a saint, still an archangel. Both of them are saints and archangels, but Gabriel is the lesser, the lesser guy. Okay. Back to the talk. Okay, so we have this woman who was in love with Michael. Now she's in love with a new angel, with Gabriel, and she's feeling very nostalgic about this poor, um, this this past love affair. Then we have poor Gabriel's getting all suspicious that this is why you know his wife wants to go up with uh, Miss Ivers up into Connaught, where she grew up. And then so th a little further down on one ninety. Perhaps that was why you wanted to go to Galway with the Ivers girl, he said coldly. She looked at him and asked in surprise, what for? 
Her eyes made Gabriel feel awkward. He shrugged his shoulders and said, how do I know, to see him perhaps? She looked away from him along the shaft of light towards the windows in silence. He is dead, she said at length. He died when he was only 17. Isn't it a terrible thing to die so young as that? What was he, asked Gabriel, still ironically. He was in the gas works, she said. So this is so, it's so painful because he's really being a dick. Like he's just kind of, he's wanting to um, like kind of like, well, I mean, he's disappointed. He's feeling sad. He's feeling lonely. He's not connecting with his wife. And then his wife is bringing up, you know, this, this past lover who then in, turns out is dead. So, you know, you certainly can't argue with a ghost on some level or compete with a ghost. But there's this idea of, of him still kind of pushing. And he's, he's asking these questions ironically. He wants her to notice what he is doing with his speech. Um, he wants her to notice with his speech that he is trying to communicate that he's jealous and he is in discomfort and she's just not getting it which is fair I mean she's having this moment but but you have a very good example of them really communicating at cross purposes like not communicating so what is he asked Gabriel still ironically he was in the gas works also like who cares like now he's gonna start maligning this poor dead guy's you know job and again, there's that class consciousness and this idea that, that you know, even from the start, that this intellectualism and this kind of, you know, learnedness is, is really the sort of um, the way to succeed in the world. Gabriel felt humiliated by the failure of his irony and by the evocation of, his, of this figure from the dead, a boy in the gasworks. While he had been full of memories of their secret life together, full of tenderness and joy and desire, she had been comparing him in her mind with another. A shameful consciousness of his own person assailed him. He saw himself as a ludicrous figure acting as a penny boy for his aunts, a nervous, well-meaning sentimentalist, orating to vulgarians and idealizing his own clownish lusts, the pitiable, fatuous fellow he had caught a glimpse of in the mirror, Instinctively, he turned his back more to the light, lest she might see the shame that burned upon his forehead. It's so sad, and I don't think I need to do a lot of discussion here. We have the word humiliated, we have the word shame, we have um, uh, shameful. So he's, he's just, instead of being angry with her, he's just absolutely just ridden, riddled, whatever. He's full of shame. He's, he's having this kind of his own struggle here. And, and it's interesting because I, the thing, one of the things I came away with here is just this absolute disconnect between these two people. I kept hoping maybe Greta would understand or he, I mean, he's, he's I think, um, you know, she's, she's lost in, in her own emotions, but um, it does seem like he is going through this full range and maybe he is not, in fact, communicating them well. And he was also being kind of a dick. But you have this idea of, of the two of them just as being so, so separate, very much like a lot of the people and a lot of, um, you know, the symbols and a lot of elements of this short story and of the collection as a whole. And then we're going to go uh, to the very end of the book. So you have this idea of all of this shame and, and it's kind of an accumulation. He does that little kind of retrospective thing about how, you know, he's he's sort of, you know, in the service of his aunts and he doesn't even mention Lily or Miss Ivers, but you, you get the sense of um, like the one victory, the one thing that was positive for him, the speech that he made is the thing that he then is feeling um, humiliated by. So it's kind of like three strikes and then we also have this real disconnect between him and his wife. 
And it's beautiful because when you have, um, on, back on page 190, when he is describing this boy, he says, Gabriel felt humiliated by the failure of his irony and by the evocation of this figure from the dead. So you have the dead there, this figure from the dead. And then at the end of the story, which is also, of course, the end of the entire collection, we have this beautiful widening that happens. So down at the bottom of 193, down here, the air of the room chilled his shoulders. He stretched himself cautiously along under the sheets and lay down beside his wife. One by one, they were all becoming shades. Better pass boldly into that other world in the full glory of some passion than fade and wither dismally with age. He thought of how she, lay, she who lay beside him had locked in her heart for so many years that image of her lover's eyes when he had told her that he did not wish to, leave, to live. So he's having some empathy here. He's having, at, at a minimum, he's having some sympathy with his wife, which is a relief. And, and you do, I mean, you get the sense it's not gonna be a happy ending, but you do have a sense of, of at least some sort of rapprochement between the two of them. Generous tears filled Gabriel's eyes. That idea of generous tears is really significant. That idea of, um, of him being able to kind of muster some generosity. He had never felt like that himself towards any woman, but he knew that such a feeling must be love, which is so sad. I mean, essentially he's saying there that he's not, he's not, he doesn't love his wife with that kind of passion. And yet he's not filled, well, there's a lot of regret, but he's not filled with anger um, or, or fury or any of the rest of it. Fury, of course, being the name of the poor lover uh, from the Gasworks who's dead. Uh, but then we're gonna look at this last part his own identity was fading out into a gray, impalpable world. The solid world itself, which these dead had one time reared and lived in, with dissolving, was dissolving and dwindling. A few light taps upon the pane made him turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward, Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the bog of Allen and farther westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling too upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling, like the descent of their last end, upon all the living and the dead. It's so beautiful. I honestly am tempted to just be quiet, but I have too much to say. So um, I want to point out a few things here that are just so well done and so beautiful. So um, at one point, Miss Ivers, she accuses him of, of, of being a West, of moving West. So he has this idea of, and this is very much what happens with Joyce, this idea of needing, in fact, to, to have an adventure, which is such a, um, a beautiful echo in lots of ways of an encounter where we have this, you know, the Wild West and the idea of an adventure. And so at the very end of the novel, 
um, you know, it's quite a bookend here. At the end of the novel, we have him saying, yes, it's time for me to, to have my adventure and to go west. So, um, it, which is totally confusing to me because of the map. I feel like if you went west from Ireland, um, you would go into the ocean. But I must have my geography wrong. My geography, not really my strong suit. Also, maybe he just means to the west and then like south to England. I don't know. Or maybe he means on a boat you know, and out of Ireland and down into um, Europe proper. So, but, but there's that same sense of him, of him ready for an adventure. But then you have this beautiful ending where he's ready to leave. He's ready to have his adventure. And then you have this idea of Ireland as being unified under this blanket of snow. And, um, you know, I'm from California and snow for me is like never not magical. Like it just is absolutely magical. And um, I think that it's it's not super common in Ireland. And yet, of course, it does happen. It certainly used to happen more. But there is this idea, um, I think, of a, of, of a certain amount of kind of romance and excitement around snow and the idea of it falling softly. And um, it, so you have this idea, too, of all of Ireland. And it's very clear Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. So the whole country is being united by the weather, by nature. So there's a sense of, of, of a very deeply divided country, divided in colonialism, divided by religion, divided by history, um, as, as really coming together, at least, you know, instead of being red, and I mean, instead of being green and orange, Catholic and Protestant, they are, um, by the way, the orange people are known as like the orange people because of William the Conqueror who was from orange. So you have that William the Conqueror Protestant thing as, as being orange versus the Ireland, the green part. So, um, you, but you have the whole country being turned white. So you have this sense of, of, of the country as being unified by the snow in this really beautiful blanket, you know, the softness of it and, and, and the idea of a blanket, I mean, it's cold, but that idea of, of softness falling all over everything. It also was so surprising to me that, of course, the, the churchyard right there is where Michael Fury is buried. And you have, um, it, you know, I'm not sure that that's totally correct. I don't, I, you know, if he's from Connaught, he's probably, I don't know why he would be married in Dublin, but maybe, I mean, maybe that was a part of the book that I have not read very carefully. But you have this sense of, of the smallness of it and the community of Dubliners that that, that you have like a, a uh, like that the, the, the country is so small and the community so tight that his wife's, you know, like teenage love is buried in their cemetery right nearby. As an American, that just seems crazy to me because, you know, this is a very large country um, in comparison. But you have this this sense, even in that country, it seems like, I mean, if you've read Milkman, you know that they're like a thousand different uh, in Belfast alone, a lot of different graveyards. But you have this sense of, of the dead and the living as all being together. And I just want to close with this beautiful, um, the, the, the language here is so pretty. So you have Michael Fury laid buried. You have this, that U sound um, and the R sound together that is so beautiful. It laid thickly drifted on the crooked crosses. So crooked and crooked crosses is such a great term because it's, you can see it's kind of a spiky word with those, um, with those stops, with the K sound, the K. And the um, crooked crosses, there's like that sense of repetition so that you can see many, many of them in your mind's eye. And headstones on the spears of the little gate. So you have this idea of violence. You have this idea of, um, you know, the tip of the spear. You have the ideas of things being gated on the barren thorns. 
His soul swooned slowly. So you listen to all of that sibilance and it's um, it's so beautiful because it's sibilance that are also together with these low vowels. His soul swooned slowly. And at the end there, it grades from these sibilance and low vowels of all of that kind of low, kind of moaning, kind of sad, slow stuff into some liquids with the slowly. You have that, the, the, that beautiful end of that little phrase there. And then we have a little more of the snow, but we have more of those liquid L's um, with this, and he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling. So you have this sense of um, falling faintly and faintly falling um, of, of, of things as being sort of reversible and universal, and but also this idea of the f, f, f it almost sounds like, you know, the, the, the snow would be hitting the pane of his window, that beautiful kind of muted sound there and the falling faintly, it's it's just, it's, it's so beautiful. And then like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. It's so beautifully done. He's linking the living and the dead because in fact they are linked because they are all going to be dead. And I love this idea of, of dead as being the final word of, of a collection that is about paralysis and that is about um, decline and that is about difficulties. And, and just such an emphatic kind of um, thump of a word there at the end, the living and the dead. So beautiful. Thank you very much for joining me. I really am feeling like we should probably read some more Joyce. If not Ulysses, then something else. I just think he's um, just really rewards a, a, a thorough digging into and also certainly rewards rereading. So if you're motivated, get back in there, read a little more Dubliners, listen to it in um, an Irish accent. I mean, what a joy to listen, well, or a British accent, either way, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking that Joyce might have preferred it being read, you know, in the King's English, um, but Irish is really more fitting for these kind of lower middle class folks that are all um, throughout the, the collection. So thank you very much for tuning in, and I hope to see you again soon for another discussion of great literature. Readers, thank you so much for tuning in today. The lectures really are the lifeblood of the Fox page, but you should really go to thefoxpage.com. There are five minute recommendations where I will predict in about five minutes whether you should or should not tackle Ulysses, or maybe why you shouldn't be so snobby about the recent uh, Leanne Moriarty beach read. There are also talks, no rereading required, on old favorites like Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, or Frog and Toad, which is quite frankly, a literary masterpiece. There's also this very cool thing where you answer a couple of questions and this cool wheel spins around and spits out a recommendation that I think might be exactly what you need and it might be something that stretches you a little bit. Come and check out thefoxpage.com. Thanks for listening and mostly happy reading.